This podcast of On Being is brought to you by Audible.com, where you'll find over 150,000 audiobooks to choose from, including titles by some of our past guests like Alain de Botton and the Dalai Lama. For a free audiobook of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com slash onbeing. All right, Krista, me and you, kid. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Where'd you go to school? Well, I grew up in a small town in Oklahoma, and then I went to Brown, which was a very strange move. My wife wrote a book titled uh, The Right Words at the Right Time. What did somebody say to you at one point in your life that changed your life? You could uh, write your own, or you could have someone write for you, and you had, of course, final cut, or you could be interviewed. And I did two. I did Muhammad Ali, and I did Ted Turner. And Turner's, as I recall, was a professor at Brown. He had a professor who taught uh, the students to think outside the box. Did anyone ever interview you and ask you that question? Did I wrote ask, one. Yeah, for, about I, yourself? Yeah, a- an, about an, your incident, own moment? an incident. Yeah, what was yours? Are we on the air here? Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Phil Donahue's pioneering daytime talk show launched in 1967. He had a front row seat on the world so many of us are now reliving through Mad Men. I watched the Phil Donahue show when I was growing up, but it wasn't until I looked back at his work that I realized how substantive a lens it was on an entire era of social, personal, and political transformation. His very first guest was the controversial face of public atheism, Madeleine Murray O'Hare. He engaged the emerging world of militant black leaders. He presented a gay man to his audience as a human being. Above all, Phil Donahue's choice of guests and topics respected the intelligence of the housewives of his audience, who themselves were in a coming upheaval. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. I met Phil Donahue at the 2013 Nantucket Project on Nantucket Island, Massachusetts. At 77, he still has the full, handsome head of gray hair for which he was always recognizable. He's still married to the actress Marlo Thomas, whom he memorably met in public on his own set. Phil Donahue grew up in a big Catholic family in Cleveland, studied at Notre Dame, and got into radio before he wandered into television. And that was the backdrop of the answer he gave to that question about a turning point of insight. I was covering a mine disaster in Logan, West Virginia, for a local television station at which place I was employed in Dayton, Ohio. And I'm like 23 years old. I must have looked 19 or 12. And I'm, I mean, I don't know if you can appreciate what it was like for me to be covering for CBS radio. I think there were like 28 miners trapped. Hmm. And we we were by the smudge pot, which is what the miners gathered around. When they would come out of the mine, they would work in shifts trying to reach their brothers who were trapped. And the snow is falling, and the miners with this, you know, the soot on their faces would gather around the smudge pot and pray for the survival of their friends who were trapped. And I remember the song, the hymn they sang was... What, what a friend we have in Jesus. Yeah. Everything to God in prayer. Yeah. And the sparks flew in the air. The snow was coming down. It was the most beautiful, humble tableau of faith and religion I'd ever seen. And the preacher would, after the singing, would say, Dear God, we are gathered here on this mountain, and we ask your blessing on these miners and their families. Please help us rescue them, dear Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. And I realized that we hadn't filmed this. And I went up to the preacher, and I said, Reverend, I'm Phil Donahue from CBS News. 
and we didn't have a chance to film you and we very much would love to get this on film so that we can send it to CBS News. And he said, well, sir, I've already prayed to my God and it just wouldn't be right to do this a second time. Uh, now I'm begging. Right, right. Reverend, your prayer will be seen in in taverns. You know, at that time, TV was mostly in <laughs> bar. Yeah. And the American people will see the power of your faith and your prayer. No, sir, I just, I, I've already prayed. I'm sorry. I, I just, this would not be true to God's word and his truth and my truth and the truth of these families. Well, I went down to this, the, the telephone company had put up some uh, pay phones for the media. And I got in that pay phone, I closed the door, I dropped a quarter in, called collect to CBS News in New York. <laughs> I mean, I'm holding this phone, I could see my knuckles were white. And into the phone I said, the son of a won't pray. And I think it must have been maybe a week or two. I'm a slow learner, really. Honestly, suddenly, after we had gone home, and I think they lost most of the miners. I don't think anybody was saved. And, of course, I couldn't get this out of my mind. And I realized that I had been witness to the most beautiful demonstration of moral courage I had ever seen in my life. And I put the story in Marlowe's book. And it, you know, it called to my attention the, the Pharisees and the publicans, the Pharisees. I forget which was which, but the Pharisees, I think, go up to the go up to the altar and they say, I am here, Lord, I love you, Lord. And right, I right. am here, and they're the... They put their know, faith uh, on display. Yeah. Yes. And the, the pomp and grandeur of some religious personalities in our nation who would have no trouble throwing holy water again if one of the station missed it at a plane accident or whatever, you know, yeah. get on TV... And this, this humble cleric, I'm sure he was Protestant, would not pray again. He had already prayed. And did that imprint you as a, I mean, clearly it imprinted you on a human level, but did it influence the trajectory of your work in media? Well, this was at a time when I was uh, really becoming a little more questioning. Because uh, you had a very serious Catholic upbringing. Very serious. Yeah. You know, my mother would say there are two kinds of Catholics. There's a Catholic and there's a good Catholic. <laughs> I never quite understood what was the difference, but my mother apparently knew. I was a good Catholic. Mm. Of course, I never missed Mass on Sunday. Our family went every Sunday. And this would be, I was early 20, so this would be not long after I graduated from Notre Dame. I entered Notre Dame, you know, thinking that I had the answers to all the questions. And I graduated from Notre Dame realizing that not only didn't I have the answers to all the questions, but the questions were now more exciting for me. Yeah. It was like I was free to question yeah. uh, things that I had never... We did have a very liberal priest at the time at Notre Dame, that, and, the, and the, the subject matter just thrilled me. We could read books on the index. The index was a list of books that Catholics were prohibited from reading. Oh, wow. And it was just a thrill, like a, a vicarious thrill. Uh, I remember uh, reading Immanuel Kant, Prolegomena to Any Future Metaphysic. And I used to tell that to girls that I was dating, you know. 
Yeah, I'm reading Prolegomena at any future metaphysic, you know. Was that attractive? Did it? Well, (laughs) as I recall, it didn't work that much, you know. Uh, I still don't think any of them kissed me goodnight, which was about as warm as you got in the 50s. I graduated from college in 1957. Right. So, you know, I was a virgin when I got married. I obeyed all the rules. And then suddenly I, you know... I began to see Catholics voting for Nixon in the 60s, supporting the Vietnam War, and my, my wheels started to turn, you know? Mm-hmm. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today with daytime talk show pioneer Phil Donahue. You know, the show you did in the era, in those years in which you created that show. I mean, one thing that I've... I mean, so I watched your show, right? I mean, I was born in 1960. And you turned out anyway, huh? Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> By the way, my show was born in 1967. 67, so. yeah. So, I mean, in my growing up years, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, I mean, but so one thing as I've been, knew I was going to interview you, I'm, I understood better what, partly what was so unusual that you innovated, which was, it was pure talk without entertainment, right? And it actually struck me as I was just, I was looking back at some of it and, and also looking at what you've been doing more recently. And, you know, what you were doing, what you were drawing out of people and for this American audience was this exploration of the human condition as it relates to society and politics. And those were wild years for the human condition. They were wild years for society and politics. Why was Madeline Murray O'Hare your first guest? Because I knew she was compelling. Um, we had a very boring show, visually. Two talking heads. Which was unusual then, right? Oh, we were competing with other shows. Come on down! With spinning wheels and people screaming. And Marty Hall was giving away $5,000 to a woman dressed like a chicken salad sandwich. Right. Uh, Let's make a deal. And here I come with two talking heads. Uh, the industry didn't understand us at all. And, so, and we were in Dayton. Stars were not available to us. Yeah. So I knew that the only way we could survive would be issues. Something that would compel the viewer. And did you know that at the outset? Did you understand that that's what you had to make the issues yes. vivid? I had, remember, I had come from a radio show where... I could have the guest long distance so that pretty interesting guests mm-hmm. didn't have to. Nobody's going to fly to Dayton, Ohio to be on a radio show. And I had interviewed Madeline on the show, and religion I just was fascinated with. Mm-hmm. And I am now and I was then. I just, especially coming from Notre Dame yeah. and the, you know, prolegomena to any future metaphysic, wow. And because my own head was starting to change. Mm-hmm. And the devil, as it would be known then, was tempting Phil Donahue, of all people. 16 years of Catholic education. And the devil was saying, why are these religious figures so interested in publicity and yeah. wealth? And uh, why, why do the wealthiest people in the parish get entree to the pastor that the common people do not. And it's probably hard for people to even remember how controversial an an atheist, a prominent atheist like Madeleine O'Hare was in the 1960s. Right. It was the worst you could be. It was right there with gay, gayness. Yeah. Uh, and of course, we put a gay guy on in November of 1967. 67. Yeah. 
Before Stonewall. Over a year before Stonewall. But also just that, like that, right? You put a man right. in and the chair who was a gay man, and that was this specimen of something. I, it was like, uh, I mean, I was scared to death because I felt they're going to think I'm gay. And, you know, and nobody was out in 1967. Did you use the language of gay? Was that the language, or was it homosexual? Or Isn't that a good question? I don't The language is so evolving so rapidly now. I, I, can, I just yeah. can't get over it. Um, I got a, a, an email from a young man in Michigan, or somewhere, Wisconsin, I forget. And he said, Dear Mr. Donahue, I heard you say on Oprah that you put your first gay guest on in 1967. I think that is my uncle hmm. who has passed. Hmm. And do you have a tape? And I wrote him back and I said, we didn't know we were going to be the Donahue show in 1967. And I said, it, you know, VCRs may have existed then and someone may have taped that somewhere, but I regret I, I know of no copy of that uh, program but I would like you to know that I think your uncle was as powerful a demonstration of moral courage as I'd ever seen. And I also think the program rises to the level of historic because nobody else was acknowledging gayness. What was the reaction? Well, uh, pretty severe. We lost sponsors. Um, mothers thought their children would catch it if they saw it. Yeah. Why are we aggrandizing this man? To put him on television makes him look like he's a, a hero or something. Just disgust. Uh, and thank God we had a general manager who didn't drop his tools and run. He stuck with us. And one of the reasons he did was that we had a tremendous rating. Everybody was watching the Donahue show. Mm -hmm. And in my business, the coin of the realm is the size of the audience. Yeah. So, you know, that was my trump card. We were drawing a huge audience. So nobody was good, no general, this general manager, it wasn't easy. Yeah. It would have been much easier to cancel us. It would be much easier to run reruns of I Love Lucy. We were on the air at 10.30 in the morning. There was all kinds of product out there that could have, and a lot less trouble. So, you know, that was, these, this is the first month we were on the air. Uh, we premiered on November 7th, 1967, with Madeline. There is no mm. God, there's no heaven, there's no angels. When you die, you go in the ground and you biodegrade and you become part of the physical universe. Well, my dear, you know, the whole town of Dayton fell down. And the letters came pouring in. But I don't want to overstate it. Dayton is a town that's built on a, the, the river that runs through Dayton, the Miami River, is not navigable. It's a town built on brains starting, of course, with the Wright brothers. The viewers in Dayton accepted our show by and large. Certainly we took our hits. People pushed back. And I had salesmen from my station outside my office doors, you know, who weren't interested in a speech about the First Amendment. They just lost Rogers Pontiac. You know? right, right, and they right, had right. kids, too, and a mortgage. But somehow we survived all that. And the other thing that you did that I think there was a lot of awareness about, at the time, I mean, one of the things you were doing is you were broadcasting to a lot of women who stayed at home. Yes. And most women of a certain class stayed at home at that time. And you were assuming that they had brains, right? You were presenting, you were putting a lot of subjects and complexity on at that time of the day. It's amazing to realize how sexist the world was, and certainly my industry was. 
Women cared only about covered dishes, needlepoint, babies, and maybe home decoration. And uh, we came barging in with all these issues, Mm -hmm. including war and peace and protest. But Uh, you were pretty traditional also, I think, in your... In your first marriage, in I mean, when as you, I I did get your memoir that you wrote way back then mm-hmm. out of the library, right? And you describe yourself also as have coming out of that world that that in fact was shifting. Absolutely, we rode <laughs> the feminist movement, the gay rights movement, yeah, the anti-war movement. We put tie-dye T-shirt kids on with long hair. And this is in the late 60s, yeah. who were protesting the war. We had a woman on whose daughter was a student at Antioch College. And she was in the Greene County Jail, having been arrested at a demonstration, and fasting to end the war. And the, woman in, the women in the audience were saying, well, what if she dies? And the woman, the mother would say, why aren't you concerned about the 300 young men coming home from this horrible war in Southeast Asia in plastic zipper bags? Why don't you care about that? And then another one would say, well, I do care about that, but this is your daughter, and I couldn't get them to... And we had something that no one else on television had. Hmm. And, but, but sexism reigned. It was a huge issue at the time. And what we did was... Uh, you know, feminists would come into the show and they would say, children get too much mother and not enough father. And they were talking about me. Mm. And did, were you having that experience in real time? Oh, like, were sure. You, you were, oh. in some ways, it's like you had this front row seat on the 1960s and 70s. I did. And, and was, you were able to, like, invite the whole cultural negotiation into I the seat across from I wish this... Good fortune on anybody I love. It was a wonderful experience. Mm. I had the, every issue on a platform that had my name on it. Mm-hmm. And to this day, I get people come up to me, thank you, Mr. D- in airports. Thank you, Mr. Donahue, because of your show, I got out of an abusive marriage. Mm. Thank you, Mr. Donahue, because of your show, I came out to my parents. A lady told me, a woman told me the other day, at 10.30 every morning, her mother would put on her, her lipstick and go into the, another room and close the door and watch the Donahue show. So we became kind of appointment television, mm. and especially for seniors, you know, older women. Mm. And, and we did shows with feminists who would say out loud, I don't want to live the life of my mother. You know, and you'd have <clears throat> people calling in, I'm not a feminist, but. Yeah. And then they'd proceed. Now to, that's what women's, younger women say again. It's come full circle. Yeah, is that what they yeah. <laughs> In a different way. Yeah. Um, and then were you, uh, you know, were you aware that this was changing you? Were your views of women changing? I don't know. Yeah. It's hard to say. Certainly, somewhere along the way, I thought, you know, Dad gets up and has a leather suitcase and goes off in the car to the big building downtown, and Mom goes in the basement to do the laundry. And what this was doing to children, girls especially. And... uh, then legislation began. Girls' sports became an important issue for high schools. And, hmm. It's so uh, interesting to think about that, yeah. not having been around. I'm, I'm really... Yeah. It's really amazing. And the, the, the drama continues, the tension continues. Is it right that you put an abortion being performed on the show? Yes, we did. And then you invited the archdiocese and... I a did. number of people to discuss <clears throat> yes. it. And we showed them to film. Yeah. Um, and was that, that was at 10.30 on the weekday morning? That was, yeah. Now, 
We aired in various times around the country. Okay, but that was it. Was a regular show. It was that well, day's show. Well, we, we 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 taped the abortion. Yeah, right. And uh, and the, and then before we put it on, we called the, the people from the archives. They came. We put them in a room and showed them the tape. And mm -hmm. of course, when it was over, I walked in the room and they were weeping. And uh, they were very concerned because it looked so easy. I said, well, this is the procedure. And it's so easy that more people will get them. And I said, you know, this is an issue that is splitting families. You can listen again and share this conversation with Phil Donahue through our website, onbeing.org. There you can also subscribe to our podcast. Again, that's onbeing.org. Although it's now a standard of every daytime talk show, Phil Donahue pioneered the audience participation format. He was the first host to ever go out into the audience, making them part of the conversation. Here are some moments from a show he did in 1979 with Atlas Shrugged author Ayn Rand. And go back to something you said about industry. Fifteen years ago, I was impressed with your books, and I sort of felt that your philosophy was proper. Today, however, I'm more educated, and I find that if a company... This is what I don't answer. Well, wait I'll a minute. You haven't heard the question yet. She's already estimated her position and my work, incidentally, displaying the quality of her brain. If she says today she is more educated... I am more educated what? now than I was 15 years ago when I was in high school, Since, before uh, I went to college, I'm and before not I read the newspaper. in your biography. Let her, well, let her make context. her point. Let her make her point. Let her make her point. I will not answer anyone who is impolite, but to show you... She wasn't impolite. I, You're equating someone who disagrees with you with impoliteness. That's not uh, fair. No, no, no. Oh. If you didn't... Coming up, Phil Donahue on his personal transformations on race, gender roles, and parenting in the dramatic era he captured on television. I'm Krista Tippett. On Being continues in a moment. This podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, with more than 150,000 downloadable audio titles across all types of literature, including religion, science, fiction, and nonfiction. There you'll find books by wonderful guests on this show, including the new book, Pastrix, The Cranky, Beautiful Faith of a Sinner and Saint by Nadia Boltz-Weber. She spent years as an addict and a stand-up comic before being surprised by a call to be a minister to people on the underside of life. You'll want to hear her tell these stories in her own original voice. And especially for On Being listeners, Audible is offering an audiobook of your choice when you try Audible for 30 days. Find all the details on their website, audiblepodcast.com slash onbeing. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today with broadcaster Phil Donahue. His show was the original daytime talk show focused on issues, and he was a pioneer in audience participation. Oprah Winfrey has said there would have been no Oprah without Donahue. We've been discussing his remarkable lens on the social and political dramas of the late 20th century. He's recently guest-hosted for Bill Moyers and had a stint on MSNBC. Here's an interview he did in 2002 with Nation of Islam leader Louis Farrakhan. Thousands and thousands of people yes. come to hear you speak. And I think I understand why. You speak to their anger. And, and, you know, it's not possible to argue against the anger. Two million people in jail for every 100,000 people in prison. 3,500 are black, 1,100 Hispanic, and 462 are white. When I hear you speak to these injustices, to these, you know, racial profiling, New Jersey State Troopers, when I... Honestly, I think if I were a black male, I'd be at Randall's Island listening to you speak. I would. You know, the political power that you have is undeniable. 
But you make it tough on the white reporters. I mean, how, you know, it's with all this history of this kind of rhetoric, it's awful tough to say, hey, Minister Farrakhan, sit down, tell us how horrible we are. We have to challenge you as you would challenge us. This isn't a game. This is a matter of the respect that we want to have as professionals. You can't get up there and talk like that as a man of God using language like you do. So I'm asking for some understanding here. You bring this on yourself, <laughs> sir. It was just so honest. And we don't have honest public discussions in media or elsewhere. Yeah, I think I scolded him for not being uh, respectful of uh, Jewish mothers, for example. Yeah. Jewish parents. Yeah. Uh, devout Jews who... You know, he called it the dirty religion. Or uh, this is yeah. back when he was really yeah. quite offensive. And um, I, I decided to challenge him on his absence of Christian empathy for yeah. uh, the feelings that he was wounding deeply uh, of Jewish people and others who lived their life around a faith. And so I do remember that part. And, uh, and I do remember saying that, you know, I get it. I can, I've heard him speak, you know. You don't know your name, he would say to a black audience. Mm -hmm. uh, that their names were given them by white people. Uh, you know, Washington and Jefferson. Mm -hmm. Right, and, right. And I recall being struck by the power of that yeah. and that I had never thought of that. But, you know, race, for example, is something that we now bemoan right and left that we don't know how to talk about, even with a black man in the White House. I know that you resist being asked to be the person saying we did it so much better in the olden days, right? You don't, you don't like to be in that role. But when you watch, I mean, you've talked about war in recent years in a way that got you into hot water. But when you watch uh, how we talk or fail to talk, to have the, the cultural reflection we need to have about something like race, you know, could you say how you might like to, you know, how, how we might start it in a different place? Or does your mind go there? On race or something else, maybe there's something recently you've seen and you've thought, I wish I could start the discussion here instead of there or weigh in in this way. Mm -hmm. Well, isn't that an interesting question? Um, I, I, well, I, a lot of people, a lot of my friends, <clears throat> you know, we bust our kids to a Catholic school downtown, to downtown Dayton. And I remember I went there the first time. The, the plumbing leaked in the little boys' room, and the, the paint was peeling. And in my suburban neighborhood where we lived, they had overhead projectors. They had pictures of Martin Luther King in history books hmm. in suburban Centerville. And in downtown Dayton, there would be an imprimatur of cardinal spelling, you know, and the pages were turning yellow, uh, everything was different downtown. And we, we felt that Catholics were raising another generation of racists. And we didn't want that to be with our, with our children. Mm. And um, I began to realize what paternalism was, too. I was on the board of a, of a it was called the Dakota Street Center. It was a, uh, I, I remember very well that in the meetings of the board, the white people guys did all the talking. Hmm. And I noticed that. And then I remember when we needed furniture, I said, well, why don't we go to Goodwill? And one of the black board members said, hell, we give stuff to Goodwill. <laughs> and I began to appreciate what paternalism was. 
and how the white man will solve everything and a failure to respect the views of even among the committed, which we certainly were. And of course, everybody in my own neighborhood, suburban Centerville, became convinced that we were going to sell our home to a black family. So, you know, uh, we went through that stage. And I came to realize that there were really four, uh, there were stages to commitment, you know. Uh, The first stage was the fun stage. Um, You got a kick out of marching and... uh, Right, right. And... uh, it was also a messianic stage. Everybody was a bigot but you. Hmm. You turned people off. And then the third stage was a sudden, overwhelming realization of the awesome challenge of the problem. That it was the rocket Gibraltar and you were the feather. And that's, I think, where the saints were made. People who kept on keeping on. I saw so many people just, you know, fabulous people to this day. They cared. Mm. But they did become exhausted. And a lot of people chose, you know, to fulfill it this wonderful commitment that they stopped having, they took guitar lessons or yoga. Okay. Um, and did we kind of get stuck there some culturally? Of us, some of us did, yes. Mm. And yes, a lot of us are. It's hard to, the issue is hard to raise if it's not immediate. Yeah. Remember, this is a time when my first year on the air, Bobby was assassinated. Mm. The cops beat up, beat up the kids in Chicago. Martin Luther King was assassinated. Holy cow, this is the first year we were on the air. Yeah. And we, I made sure that our staff was integrated. I remember I hired the first black applicant, a female, and uh, I'm embarrassed to say, I mean, one of the reasons I hired her is because she had the biggest afro. But I mean, this is the <laughs> this is one of the stages you you know you, that we went through, or I did. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, we were trying. You know, I think even there's something refreshing and helpful about you recalling things in that way um, because right now here in the 21st century there are a lot of problems which seem so huge and you, you, when I mean, you look back at the 60s as a very fraught you know a terrible time but a time in which incredible social shifts happened mm-hmm. and that kind of shift is kind of unimaginable now and it's not going to happen the same way but you kind of you're kind of describing this like human wearing down, this very yeah. gradual, incremental. Well, you know, sooner or later, you know, black people saw the de- deterioration of their school system. They saw police brutality aimed at them and not white people. Uh, they saw joblessness. They saw their father pushed around by cops. And pretty soon, the cities exploded. And I think about that now. The gap between the rich and the poor has never been greater and getting wider. And I say to myself, how long can this continue? without that explosion. So in some ways, I think we're, I don't know, it's hard to make a better metaphor, however trite it may be. I wonder if we aren't right now sitting on a powder keg, Hmm. especially on the matter of 
the horrible maldistribution of wealth. Uh, and the comfortable don't really talk too much about that until suddenly they're afraid to go downtown because there are people in the streets. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, Phil Donahue. Going back to that memoir you wrote in the 80s, I believe. Um, 78. The very first line of it, the very first words is, is if I could start parenthood over again. That was really st- striking to me that that's where you began. And at that point, you were a huge celebrity and... You know, your show was a huge phenomenon, and you started it with your regrets about parenting. Well, I came to realize, like so many other, too late, too soon old, too late smart. We, we were raised at a time when people thought the worst thing you could do was spoil your children. You know, uh, kids have to know that the life is tough and it's filled with challenges, and you have to make them tough, blah, 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 blah. It was like... They were clay, and you had to knead them and push them and right. spank create. them. Yeah, spank yeah. them, and do, you know. And so, uh, you know, I I came to feel pretty guilty about this. Again, guilt. Um, on those occasions when my children pleased me, I didn't say so. And now, when I walk to Starbucks in the morning in New York City, I see mothers you know, with their babies, some of them in a stroller. And I see them, you know, kissing their babies. <laughs> I love you, honey, you little baby. You're so precious to me. Yeah. And I thought to myself, I never did that. And, and you see fathers doing it, I, too. And fathers, yeah, yes. Yeah. And I think to myself, why didn't I do that, you know? And why wasn't I more... Uh, it's such a more enlightened time now. Hmm. Uh, parents are more enlightened in my, I, you know, certainly we have too many children today growing up without that kind of attention. So, uh, you know, another, <laughs> another reason for me wanting to start over <laughs> again. <laughs> yeah. So, but you know, my kids all talk to me, so I'm. Do they? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I want to ask you as the, uh, the Catholic in you, what do you think of the new Pope, of Pope Francis? I mean, you've lived, you, you know, you've been, you've been Catholic a long time, and right. you actually did a show on Catholic clergy sexual abuse. When was that? In the mid-90s? Very, Very early. With my you've mother watching. You've watched a lot with your mother watching. Um, well, well, I don't know the, uh, Pope Francis. You know, I admire the first step he's taking. He's trying, he doesn't live in the, up in the grand large rooms of uh, the Pope, papal residence in the Vatican. That's, that's a good thing. Yeah. Let's not overdo it. But, you know, I'm, Pope or no Pope, I, the, the treatment of gay people in traditional Catholic teaching is itself a mortal sin. You know, if the church believes they're sinners, it makes it easier for me to beat them up. Have you, over the years, developed a sense of God that is in contrast to, the, to that doctrine and theology that has come to make you so, that you've really rejected, that's come to be so uncomfortable? Well, I, uh, uh, Lord uh, Tennyson speaks for me. <laughs> Lord Tennyson. I've gone from Immanuel Kant to Lord Tennyson. <laughs> that's right. It's hidden in a poem titled The Memoriam. Here's what he said. There lives more faith in honest doubt, believe me, than in half the creeds. I read that and I thought, well, I wish I roomed with you in college. You must have been interesting. (laughs) Um, And like, you know, I'm dangerous. I have a little knowledge. So that's my little peek into Alfred Lord Tennyson, mm. just as I had only a glancing blow to 
prolegomena to any future metaphysics. <laughs> Kant, yeah. But I, uh, that speaks for me. I used to have fights with Madeline all the time. Madeline, uh, Madeline, Madeline oh, Murray O'Hare. Murray, I yeah. would say, Madeline, you cannot tell a person that you're absolutely certain there is no God. And then in the same breath, tell them that, that you're absolutely certain that they can't they be can't, certain. They that, can't be certain there is a God. Yeah, yeah. It, it's a contradiction. You can't, yeah. you can't do that. And so, you know, agnosticism may be the the only honest route here. And keep your mind open. I mean, I am impressed with the universe. I look up at night and I'm, wow. I mean, it's you know, it, it, we can't f fathom this. There are distances. The fact that every little pinpoint up there is a sun. Hmm. A sun, except for our planets. Yeah. They're all suns. Carl Sagan said that on the air one day, and I thought, wow, I never thought of that. Mm. On your show? Uh-huh. Yeah. So, you know, the order, the, the uh, orbiting, the novas, and the uh, great swirls that, the, that the, the new photography is bringing down to us. Yeah. Beautiful. The Horsehead Nebula and... And the sombrero, and there are things up there that just fascinate me. And that the light that we're seeing now left, what, a thousand years ago? I mean, that's how long it took light to get here. Whoa. <laughs> it's hard for me to believe this is an accident. But I'm having more and more trouble dealing with a commanding God. I'm having more and more trouble dealing with original sin. I'm not even asked to be born, and I'm born with sin. I'm, I'm born with a sin. But if you don't have that sin, then what do you do with Calvary? And, of course, I've been re recently attracted to Sam Harris. And Have you? I was just wondering. I was just thinking, who would be the guest on your show now with oh, this line of inquiry? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think you'd have a lot of physicists on now, too, some of these, the new physicists. Right, you yes. know, but it's funny. A physicist lean more toward the possibility of a god than this, the life scientists do. Well, so they have a rich vocabulary of mystery, yes. as you're, which is kind of what you're, of wonder, right. which is what you're right. describing. And, and you know, um, I've come to know and really admire Ed Wilson, E.O. Mm. E. Wilson yes, of Harvard, yes. the entomologist mm -hmm. and sociobiologist. He'll pick up a bug or maybe an ant and he'll say, this is a masterpiece. Mm. And you see those legs all in unison, propelling the main body forward, mm. the swivel head, the antenna. There's a brain in there, such as it is. A brain managing these various body parts. And uh, the more I get into it, I, and somebody said to me, and this is an, these are all things that have come to me so late, hmm. you can take a Magellanic voyage around the trunk of a single tree. Oh, man. And I, now I know why I was so filled with wonder as a child when I was in the woods and saw that dappled sunlight and the brook and the water rolling over rocks and this, the sound it made and the things that s scooted and skittered when I lifted a rock. And it's only very recently, much later in life, that I realized this can be studied. We don't know all the answers here. As a child, I just thought, that's what it was. You know, who made you? God made you. Sit down. Right. <laughs> and I wasn't encouraged to study it. And that's why the young people today who have moved into the natural sciences and go out and get their socks wet, walking through woods in their little notebook, and you know, yeah. I, I'm so impressed with these people. They're going to save us all. I think what you've modeled is study by conversation, you know, inquiry into daily life, too. So I, I want to thank you as somebody who's doing my part in that lineage. Well, thank it's you. It's a real honor to meet you. Pleasure. And believe me, there are some peop many people out there who can carry this ball and, I mean, throw back answers that 
will just, I think, be a thousand times more inspiring, informed. You know, the people who got smart early. <laughs> Those are the people you want to talk to. Wow. They're fascinating. I ought to know I've met several of them on my own show. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Krista. Phil Donahue's daily talk show, Donahue, aired from 1967 to 1996. He now writes and guest hosts, and he produced and directed a documentary film, Body of War. To listen again or share this show with Phil Donahue, go to our website, onbeing.org. And you can follow everything we do throughout the week through our weekly email newsletter. Just click the newsletter link to subscribe on any page at onbeing.org. On Being is Trent Gillis, Chris Hegel, Lily Percy, and Michael Elsesser. We say farewell with this show to our intern, Megan Bender, a deep thinker and an old soul. And special thanks this week to Tom Scott, Kate Brosnan, Janelle Ferry, and all the good people at the Nantucket Project, which is where I sat down with Phil Donahue. On Being is supported by the Ford Foundation, working with visionaries on the front lines of social change worldwide at FordFoundation.org. And by Calliopeia Foundation, contributing to organizations that weave reverence, reciprocity, and resilience into the fabric of modern life. On Being is extending its reach throughout America with support from Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private foundation. On Being is distributed by American Public Media and is a Krista Tippett public production.